Chapter 3, Part 4 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 3 The Study of the Old Testament and the Religion of Israel. Part 4 Literary Criticism and the Interpretation of the Old Testament The Function of Criticism The function of criticism is appreciation, not depreciation, as is too commonly supposed. It seeks to present each object that it studies in its true light. It seeks to know it precisely as it is. It divests it of all error and prejudice that do but befog vision, and allows it to stand out in the clear light of truth. Only thus is it possible for true appreciation to be enkindled in the soul. The thing studied must be looked at from every side, and the conditions amid which it was produced must be clearly understood, if its value is to be rightly estimated, and if the producer's ability is to be properly evaluated. The capacity for critical appreciation needs careful cultivation. The ability to see a thing just as it is seems within easy reach of all, but as a matter of fact it is possessed by relatively few. This is particularly true in the field of literary appreciation, and when the literature in question is biblical, obstructions in the field of vision rapidly multiply. We come to the study of our sacred literature with our minds already closed to much that it has to say to us because of the theories and prejudices that we entertain regarding this whole group of literature in general and the special section under consideration in particular. The truly critical interpreter comes to the literature to be interpreted with his mind free from all restraining and obstructive influences. He seeks only to hear what the literature itself has to say. He insists that it be allowed to tell its own tale and to make its own impressions. Intelligent appreciation springs only from full and exact knowledge of things as they are. Still another difficulty that all too easily besets the interpreter is the more or less unconscious feeling that the Old Testament, being a part of the Bible, must always be of value primarily for practical purposes of edification. Its purpose must be that of stimulating the devotional life. Hence, if a passage, when read in its natural and normal meaning, does not seem to yield material for spiritual enrichment, it must be re-examined and probed until some hidden, richer significance is discovered. As a matter of fact, however, there are whole pages of the Old Testament that can, in and of themselves, by no legitimate methods be made to minister to the soul's welfare, and evidently were not written for that purpose. Take, for example, the genealogical lists that occur so often. The Old Testament is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness, but it does not yield its richest treasures to those who seek to force it to say what they expect from it. A facile, superficial, homiletical exposition of the Old Testament misses most of its highest values. Before using it for practical purposes, we must make the honest effort to let it tell its message in its own way. The Criteria of Poetry The critic, therefore, is in part a searcher for information. He approaches each piece of literature with a series of questions. One of his first concerns is the determination of the class and character of this literature with which he is dealing. Is it poetry, or is it prose? This question is not so simple as it seems at first thought. 
Hebrew manuscripts do not distinguish between the two by writing poetry in a special poetic form. A casual look at a page of Hebrew, as printed even in our older Bibles, does not at once reveal the classification to which it belongs, for there is no distinction in the arrangement of poetic and prose lines. It becomes necessary, therefore, for the student to learn to recognize poetry by such characteristics of form and content as are independent of copyist and printer. This recognition of poetry as such is, of course, of the greatest importance for interpretation. No one dreams of taking poetic statements in the same literal and matter-of-fact way in which prose utterances are interpreted. It is of the essence of poetry to be imaginative, figurative, and idealistic. We do violence to the spirit of poetry when we treat it as a mere sober statement of fact. To do so is utterly to misunderstand the point of view and purpose of the writer. For example, we should hardly treat as a literal statement of fact these poetic lines. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. Psalm 114, verse 4. Yet it is by no means always easy to discriminate between poetry and prose in the Old Testament. At the present time there is not unanimity of judgment in this matter. Of course, such books as the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Job commend themselves to all as poetical. There is, too, an increasing willingness to recognize much of the prophetic writings as poetry. But some enthusiastic students of Hebrew poetry are not content unless we declare such books as Genesis and Samuel to be poetic also. The careful study of the nature and form of Hebrew poetry is, consequently, a duty incumbent upon every interpreter of the Old Testament. Even the prophetic books take on a different atmosphere when we clearly understand the significance of the fact that they are poetic in form and spirit. How much greater a change in our attitude would result were we to conclude that the historical books too are poetry and not prose? Parallelism The outstanding formal characteristic of most Hebrew poetry is its parallelismus membrorum. This parallelism is represented in such verses as in Judah is God known, his name is great in Israel, in Salem also is his tabernacle, and his dwelling place in Zion. Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2. The statement of the first line is repeated in slightly different form in the second, and that of the third in the fourth. This is the simplest and most easily recognizable form, and is usually designated synonymous parallelism. Another closely similar variety is called antithetic. It is represented largely in the book of Proverbs. For example, The full soul loatheth a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Proverbs 27, verse 7. A third kind is known as synthetic, since two or more parallel clauses are necessary to the complete thought. For example, Yea, though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The fact of such departure as this from the norm of strict parallelism is one of the elements that enters into the task of deciding between poetry and prose. If the parallel form is not clearly marked, as it is in the synonymous and antithetic varieties, and if in addition the poetic quality of the literature is not very high, it is not an altogether simple matter to classify it correctly. METER the problem of meter in Hebrew poetry is one still far from solution. How are the parallel lines organized? 
can they be measured by poetic feet? Are the units of which the lines are composed of equal length? How is length determined, by the number of syllables or by the number of words? Does the nature of the syllable play any part in the calculation, that is, whether it is long or short? Is the same meter requisite throughout a poem, or may there be more or less variation? These and other related questions still call for decisive answer. Uncertainty on these matters also tends to increase the difficulty of distinguishing poetry from prose. The one thing in this sphere that seems fairly certain is that the basis of the poetic line is accentual. We count the number of word accents as the measure of the line. In general, also, the length of the lines thus determined is the same throughout a given poem. But the usage controlling the number and nature of the unaccented syllables that accompany each accented syllable has not yet been discovered. Varieties of Prose If the literary product under consideration turns out to be prose, the critical student seeks farther to know to what class of writings it belongs. Is it historical narrative, concerned with no other end than that of recording events exactly as they occurred? Is it sermonic or didactic in character, setting consciously before itself the end of instruction and edification? If the latter, to what extent is its treatment of history controlled by its aim? If ostensibly historical, is it really so? Careful discrimination must be made between the mythical or legendary and the historical. Allowance must be made also for the possible presence of parabolic or allegorical matter under the guise of historical narrative. The failure to recognize this has played havoc with the interpretation of such literature as the Book of Jonah. Again, are the visions in Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah the records of veritable prophetic experiences, or are they but a literary or homiletic dress chosen for the more effective presentation of the prophetic thought? The search for answers to these and other such questions yields a knowledge of the literary methods and characteristics of the Hebrews which is of the greatest value to the interpreter. Composite Authorship Another matter for investigation by the literary student is the problem whether or not the writing before him is a unit. As a matter of fact, most of the Old Testament books are today regarded as of composite origin. The analysis of the Hexateuch into several documents and the partition of the book of Isaiah among several writers are but illustrations of the situation as a whole. The tests of the unity of a biblical book are in general precisely the same as those applied to any other book. Are the language and style throughout the work one and the same, or are there marked variations? Judgments regarding style will always differ somewhat, de gustibus nil disputandum. But certain objective, outstanding differences can be recognized by all. Browning and Longfellow, for instance, could hardly be confused. Stylistic differences of pronounced character are thus generally recognizable, and they, at least, reinforce other considerations indicating diversity of authorship. Similarly, the language of Chaucer and that of Tennyson could not possibly be regarded as belonging to the same man or the same age. In the same way, the language of the Old Testament represents approximately the history of a thousand years. Unfortunately, the history of the Hebrew language is not as well known as the history of English. Furthermore, the language of the Old Testament has undergone considerable revision from time to time, being kept up to date by reason of the fact that the books were so widely read and in such steady demand. Yet there are certain clearly marked differences between early and late Hebrew, 
and the presence of both in one book gives rise to legitimate suspicion regarding its unity. Another criterion of unity is harmony throughout the writing. Are the statements it makes and the presuppositions it reflects mutually compatible? Are the likes and dislikes in general the same throughout? Are the interests and ideals sufficiently alike to belong to one mind, or do they presuppose more than one? Is the theological standpoint the same from beginning to end, or are there differences of religious and theological character too great to be reconciled on the hypothesis of unity? For example, could David have held the two conceptions of God reflected in 1 Samuel 26 verses 17 to 20 and Psalm 139 verses 7 to 12? The same inspection must be made of the historical background. Is it the same throughout? The historical situation is revealed sometimes indirectly and incidentally, even when we are not directly informed as to the period to which a writing belongs. If a discussion of some religious doctrine were, for example, to use an illustration based on wireless telegraphy, later ages would be enabled to determine the terminus a quo, at least, of the writing by that incidental allusion, even if no other information were available. The Author the next question asked of a book by the interpreter is, who wrote it, or its several constituent elements? The mere possession of an author's name is of little value in itself. We seek rather to know the man as he was. To what stratum of the social whole did he belong? It is of great help, for example, in the understanding and appreciation of the sympathy felt by Amos and Micah for the poor and the oppressed to know that they both came from the peasant class, and knew whereof they spoke by personal experience. What was the inheritance of the author in the way of family traditions and prejudices? What kind of training or education had been his? What were his personal history and experience? We come to the prophecy of Hosea, for example, with somewhat different attitudes, according as we regard him as a young man who had bestowed all the wealth of his love upon a maiden who, after she had become his wife, developed lustful proclivities and finally deserted him, or as a man who believed himself called of God to marry an out-and-out -out harlot that he might thereby furnish a striking object lesson to Israel. The fuller and the more exact our knowledge of the author, his antecedents, and his temperament, the better qualified are we to appreciate his point of view and his utterance. The date. It is of primary importance to fix the date of a writing as nearly as possible. The value of this information lies in the fact that it enables us to know the historical situation out of which the writing came and to which it was addressed. This knowledge is necessary to a full understanding of any writing. To know in the fullest measure possible the environment of the writer and the situation of those to whom he wrote throws a flood of light upon the meaning and significance of his words. Words uttered in the ninth century would not convey the same significance as the same words coming from the third century B.C. Prophecies from the days of Jeroboam II cannot be understood aright if read with the supposition that they come from the exile. The circumstances of the age are woven into the very texture of the thought, and they must be known if that thought is to be made wholly intelligible. The date of a piece of literature is determined in various ways. The superscription attached to it not infrequently states a date, but the superscriptions were evidently added by later editors, in many cases at least, for they frequently do not accord with the contents of the document to which they are prefixed. Hence, in every case, whether there is superscription or not, the final test of the date of a document is the document itself. 
if it alludes to known historical events and circumstances, these of course fix the date at least within limits. For example, since the 137th Psalm opens with, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. It is perfectly clear that the period of the exile lay behind the writer. The last verses of the same psalm, on the same principle, show that the city of Babylon had not yet, when the poet wrote, been punished as he thought it deserved, that is, totally destroyed. When Isaiah chapter 44, verses 26 to 28, and chapter 45, verse 1 and following, speak of the wasted state of Jerusalem and of the triumphs of Cyrus, it is clear that the writer of these chapters lived during the latter part of the exile, after Cyrus had begun his glorious career, and before Babylon had fallen or a return from exile had taken place. Specific historical allusions are not always, however, available. Then recourse must be had to other kinds of testimony. The vocabulary and syntax of the language give some aid in the determination of date. The appearance of certain words and of certain idioms can be dated with approximate definiteness. Their presence or absence from a document is therefore a slight indication of the time when it originated. Persian or Greek words, for example, at once betray the age to which a writing belongs. But, on the whole, less aid is derived from the linguistic argument than from any other. Compare page 110. Much help in dating a book or document is often derived from a study of the social, political, and ecclesiastical institutions, customs, and ideas it reflects. If the writer refers to the monarchy, for example, as an existing institution, he reveals the general period to which he belongs. In like manner, if he laments the lack of temple services, we at once place him in the exile. If the whole background of his thought is commercial or urban, rather than rural and agricultural, we put him in the later sections of the history. This kind of testimony is furnished particularly by the religious and theological thought of the writer. For instance, when Second Samuel chapter 24 verse 1 tells us that Yahweh moved David against Israel, saying, Go number Israel and Judah, and First Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1, in describing the same situation, informs us that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel, we know that a long history of religious and theological development lies between the two interpretations. The difference in standpoint illustrated by these two judgments runs through the entire thought of the two stages of religion represented by these two passages. Writings whose theological and religious standpoint approximate that of the passage in 1 Samuel belong near the beginning of the process of growth. Those that approximate the standpoint of the chronicler belong near the end of the Hebrew period and the steps along the way from the first to the second are fairly well recognizable, so that the religion and theology of a writer do much to place him chronologically for us. The Author's Purpose Another contribution to the understanding of a document is made when we discover its author's purpose in writing it. If we read the books of Chronicles, for example, as a sober record of history, made by one whose chief aim was to find out what the facts were, and what the causes were that controlled the course of events, we are confronted by vexatious questions. How can we account for the many discrepancies between chronicles and kings? Compare, for example, Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 5, chapter 17, verse 6, and First Kings chapter 15, verse 14, and chapter 22, verse 43, the latter being much the older record. 
Why does the chronicler, if a historian primarily, pass over so many facts without mention of them? For example, the story of Bathsheba, the discords in David's family, and the Elijah and Elisha stories. How does it happen that the David of the chronicler is a saint, chiefly interested in preparations for the proposed temple and its ritual, while the David of Samuel and Kings is a man of flesh and blood, busied in war and intrigue and the practical affairs of a monarch's daily life? When we discover that the chronicler was not at all concerned with history as such, but was solicitous to vindicate the legitimacy and glory of God, the temple, the priesthood, and the ritual as he knew them and loved them, many of these questions are at once answered. He was interested in the facts of history only to the extent to which he could make them subserve his purpose. He therefore selected such materials as he could use to teach the lessons he desired to inculcate, and passed by the rest. He also interpreted past history from the standpoint of his own time and from the viewpoint of his great purpose, and thus presented conclusions widely at variance with those of an earlier interpreter writing from a different standpoint and with a different purpose. If we take prophetic literature, the importance of knowing the prophetic purpose is equally great. If we decide that the prophets were merely human automatons who spoke and moved as the Spirit of God directed them, there will be practically no limits except such as inhere in our conception of God, to our conceptions of what they might do and say. If, however, we regard the prophets as men who were profoundly moved by the events and conditions of their times, and sought to bring to bear upon their contemporaries such considerations as would turn them from sin unto righteousness, our whole interpretation of the prophetic activity will be controlled by our conception of the prophet's purpose. For example, if we think of the prophet Isaiah as seeking to stimulate Israel's faith in God at the time of the Syro-Ephraimite invasion of Judah, we shall seek to show how the Emmanuel prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7, contributed to the achievement of his purpose, and we shall have great difficulty in understanding how it could do so if it was primarily a prediction of the coming of Jesus Christ, as older interpreters used to say. Again, if we regard the writer of Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 as engaged in the great purpose of inspiring and strengthening discouraged Israel in captivity, that it might be ready to seize the opportunity for return when it should present itself, we shall read these chapters with a new appreciation. We shall at once understand why he enlarges upon the power and the love of Yahweh and the futility and absurdity of idolatry. We shall also see why so much attention is given by him to the problem of suffering, he must explain satisfactorily the misfortunes of the past if he would inspire confidence in Yahweh for the future. Comparative Study of Literature The necessity of still another way of approach to the Hebrew literature is now beginning to be recognized. It was long thought that the Old Testament literature was absolutely unique, that it was quite without parallel in any way. But within recent years certain facts have come to light which challenge that point of view. The Babylonians had a creation story and a deluge story which present such striking points of similarity to the biblical stories that we are forced to raise the question of the use of the Babylonian stories by the biblical writers. The Code of Hammurabi, king of Babylon, antedated the Mosaic legislation by hundreds of years. Some of the Mosaic laws are much like those of Hammurabi. Was Hebrew law therefore dependent to some extent upon older Babylonian law? The Egyptian tale of two brothers offers elements that vividly recall the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
prophetic and messianic literature has been found in Egypt at dates far preceding the earliest appearance of prophecy or messianism in Israel. Was this old Egyptian prophetic material familiar to the Hebrew prophets, and did it furnish models for the expression of Hebrew prophetic thought? In the recently discovered Aramaic papyri from Elephantine, there was found an Aramaic version of the story of Ahikar. This Aramaic version arose about 500 B.C. It is a legend of a wise man who served as chief adviser of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. In its Aramaic form it spread throughout the hither Orient, and was finally translated into Syriac, Ethiopic, Arabic, Armenian, Greek, and Slavonic. It is indisputable evidence of the freedom with which literary influences passed from one part of the Oriental world to another, and it lends new impetus to the study of Oriental literature as a whole from the comparative point of view. To what extent we are compelled to ask were the Hebrews dependent upon the literary life of the Orient as a whole for the form and content of their own literature? The Ahikar story contains a large amount of proverbial material which is no whit inferior in form or content to much that is in the book of Proverbs. We can no longer, therefore, view the Old Testament entirely as a thing apart. We must reckon with the probability of interrelations between it and surrounding literatures and be prepared for the possibility of surprising discoveries in this field. The Art of Interpretation in view of the fact that everything which has preceded is preparation for the work of interpretation, it will be recognized at once that the office of interpreter is no sinecure. His work calls for the most careful preparation and the most complete self-surrender. We must divest ourselves of every preconceived opinion or prejudice that may stand as an obstruction between us and our author. We cannot dictate to him what he shall say, but must be ready to receive what he has said. We try to put ourselves in his place, in the ways pointed out in the foregoing pages, to look through his eyes, to hear with his ears, and to feel as he felt. We may add nothing to his message, nor may we subtract anything from it. Our obligation as interpreters is to be absolutely loyal to our sources and transparently honest in our endeavor to understand their full significance. As interpreters we have no concern with the truth or the error of the views presented by our sources. We may agree or disagree with the doctrines of our author, but it is our first and only duty, in our capacity as interpreters, to understand his views completely and to report them accurately. When the student of the Old Testament has finally equipped himself thoroughly for the work of interpretation, so that he is able to read the mind of his author clearly, he is still confronted by the problem of method in his presentation of his results to the public in general. He cannot expect the average person to go through the long and painful process by which he himself has arrived at his understanding of the Old Testament. He must devise some easier way for the great majority of men. They may, perhaps, reasonably be expected to read their Old Testament in more than one English translation, a procedure which will be found helpful in so far as it presents familiar ideas in a new dress, and so arouses new thoughts about them. In so far as the translations read differ from one another, they will contribute also to bring about freedom from bondage to any one translation, and a recognition of the fact that no translation can quite take the place of the original language. Further, the main features of the historical and social situation can be set before the popular mind briefly and vividly, and the right background thus suggested for the understanding of the Old Testament book or document. 
but in addition to this it is of great value to be able to translate the ancient situations institutions and ideas into terms of modern life and thought being unable to carry our public back to the days of the hebrew people we must at least so far as possible bring the ancient life down to our modern days and interpret it in terms of our own age one of the best examples of this method of exposition is furnished us in george adam smith's commentaries on isaiah and the minor prophets end of chapter three part four